Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Isabel Coots from Optus Sport. With the Women's World Cup just days away, we had the chance to speak with current Philippines and former Matildas coach Alan Stadjic. In a fascinating story of how they came to qualify... Stadge tells us about his personal journey with the squad, their successes, and how he considers this role compared to others he has had. Enjoy. Stadge, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell me how the Philippines job came to be? Yeah, look, the job came about um, sort of freakish set of circumstances. Um, you know, as, as most people would recall, back in, back in Sydney in particular, we, we were in the middle of lockdown. Uh, 2021, that period from July through to October and, you know, stuck indoors with, with the wife and the kids for that three, four month period, especially in the western suburbs where, where we were. And, and towards the end of that lockdown, maybe in the last week of that lockdown, um, um, we were just getting ready to get out and, and received a phone call from, from Jim Fraser and, and asking if I'd be interested in taking over the Philippines women's national team. And... You know, after spending four months at home with the wife and kids, everything sounded attractive. So I um, got a call from Jefferson Cheng just a couple of hours later and, and we had discussions about what that would entail. And, and basically it was a, a 10-week camp in Irvine um, in California preparing the team for the Asian Cup, a three-month contract um, to go over there and do the best we can and hopefully give the team a chance of qualifying for its first ever World Cup, albeit you know, tough circumstances for the team. Um, a lot of players from the Philippines hadn't played for two years due to their lockdowns. A lot of the players who were based in America hadn't played over that two-year period as well. So extremely tough circumstances, but, you know, Jefferson and I came to an agreement. Um, it was a three-month deal, 10-week camp in America. We took our families over. I took my assistant coach and my strength and conditioning coach from, from the Central Coast Mariners, and, you know, three months later, we'd, we'd made a bit of history. So you just finished with the Mariners. Did you see this as a fresh new challenge for yourself? I guess the big um, motivating factor for me was the fact that I'd watched this team play for the first and only time ever at the 2018 Asian Cup. They were in the other group to us and as we were scouting our opponents at that Asian Cup, we'd come across watching them live three times and, and that was their first Asian Cup appearance for a number of years, possibly around 20 years. And and I saw something that I didn't think I'd see. They were extremely competitive. Uh, they'd beaten Jordan, uh, the home country, which was, which was an upset result. Uh, they'd lost heavily to the big guns in South Korea and China. But I saw something that there was potential in this group and in this country to progress, especially with what they'd built over that two or three year period. And, and for me, it was extremely motivating to think that They've got this one opportunity to go to this Asian Cup in 2022 and try and qualify for their first ever World Cup and hopefully built on some of the things that they had in place before. There was, there was a little bit of raw potential there and, and something that I saw that hopefully we could capitalise on and, and professionalise, for want of a better word, to, to try and bring them up to speed of international football and, and give them that opportunity. When you took it on, was this year's World Cup always a realistic chance or did you see... 
2027 being the goal? Look, knowing the Asian Cup and having been to two Asian Cups prior, 2015 and 2019, this Asian Cup in 2023 was the first one that that was expanded to 12 teams. And and I knew that there was some some opportunities there for, for different countries to be contenders to qualify. And obviously with Australia being a direct qualifier and North Korea not participating, two of the big guns were, were already eliminated. Um, and knowing the mechanics of how that draw was going to work, there were certainly some opportunities that, again, if we could bring our team up to speed, we'd be a real contender for the 2023 World Cup. It was, it was really a short-term short -term gig with a short-term vision, uh, trying to produce maximum results in, in a short space of time and, and trying to get the, best out, guess, get the best out of the situation that we could um, in that period. And, and knowing that we had uh, a 10-week camp to prepare the team was, was really something that, uh, most teams, most international teams don't get. Um, you know, at that point in time, the team only had a handful, less than a handful of players playing uh, domestic club football around the world. So the opportunity to have basically 90% of the squad or more together was, was really precious time and, and precious time that not many countries get to have. Can you talk to us about assembling the squad? You brought in some new faces, but you had to make sure they were the right people. Talk us through that. Yeah, look, the squad's come together over over a number of years now. Um, before before we even before our our Australian crew almost entered the the journey and, and the ride, for want of a better word, again, um, they'd had a process of having camps in LA um, and inviting players from all different parts of America and the Filipino uh, diaspora from around those parts, which is massive, um, massive, massive. Um, population in, in Southern California in particular, but all over America. Um, so that had already been put in place by other staff members and coaches probably in the last six or seven years prior to. So, so the team was transitioning to just being a home-based team to one being uh, more inclusive of, of players from all around the world. And, and certainly when, when we got there, possibly 50 to 75% of the squad were, were players who were born outside of Philippines, but with Filipino heritage. Um, and that's continued on. Um, you know, our goal is to not only build that foundation and something that we've done over the last 13 months is not only build that foundation of players uh, from the whole world. Um, and certainly we've got a few players now from Norway and, and other parts of Europe, including Australia, Canada, North America, who have all come from similar backgrounds. Um, also leaving a legacy back in the Philippines. And, and just recently, Noel and I have taken over the under-20s and under-17s national teams. We're really looking to put in programs in the Philippines as well to develop that next generation and, and ensure that this isn't a one-off success story, ensuring that we lay the foundations of success for this team, not only for now, but for the next five, ten years as well. So you've agreed, you've landed in California, you've got ten weeks, a ten-week training camp with the team. What was the aim of that camp, especially from you and, and the direction you wanted to take the squad into? We really didn't know what to expect when we arrived in California. I think we arrived on November the 7th. Uh, we had a trial period for players who had never been part of the team and we had about 50 trialists uh, come to that, come to that, um, come to that experiment. Uh, from that trial period, there were three or four players who joined the main group who had been part of the team in the previous period of time, whether it was previous six months or the two or three years before that when they played 
um, before COVID as a, as a national team. So we, we put all that together, but after one to two weeks of training, we realised that the base of the team was extremely low. And by, what I mean by that is their fitness levels had gone out the window. You know, mixing in the lack of club football with, with the lockdowns and, and COVID, the whole COVID period, uh, they'd, they'd really dropped away in terms of their, their capacity to train at any level other than home sessions or Zoom sessions, which some of them had been doing. So we started off with a, with a fitness program, uh, all football conditioning program to try and bring them up to speed, uh, knowing that we were going to the Asian Cup and we'd have to play potentially five games in 12 days and knowing that the fifth game would be the one that determines whether we go to the World Cup or not. So it was really... The end point was really the the main driving force behind the program in the ten week period, and you know we played our first friendly game at the end of week for, at the end of week three. Um, it was against a local second or third division team from Southern California. Um, at that point, we felt that each player was only able to play twenty minutes, and and we rotated the whole squad around, and basically they all played twenty to twenty five minutes in that match, and then. From that point on, we played a friendly game every week and week four, they played 30 minutes. Week five, they played 50 minutes. And it wasn't until week nine, a week before we left to go to the Asian Cup, where the bulk of the squad had played their first 90-minute game in a massive amount of time <laughs> before that. So, you know, it really did take the whole preparation and gradual sort of progression of fitness and uh, technique and as well as the tactical in instructions that we wanted for the group to get to that point of being able to play one full game and knowing that the first game against Thailand at the Asian Cup was an extremely important moment and one that we had to grab with both hands. After that camp and leading into the Asian Cup, which was do or die for you guys, what were some of those milestones that you wanted to hit to make sure that you were on that, that right path heading into the tournament? We went into the Asian Cup knowing full well the history of the team, knowing how they'd pre-qualified with, with some late-minute uh, victories against both Nepal and Hong Kong, 2-1 uh, just to get to that point, and knowing that to play against teams like Thailand, who were in our group, Australia, obviously a superpower within Asia, and Indonesia, who was the last team in our group. Now, the way that the draw had panned out, uh, the top two from each group went through, but also the best two third-place teams uh, we're going to go through. So for us, we really targeted game one, which was Thailand for us. Game two, Australia was almost, to a large extent, you know, an irrelevant game. Uh, we really did target uh, game one against Thailand and game three against Indonesia to try and get our points to get out of the group. And as soon as you got out of the group it, with the mechanics of this first time ever uh, draw with 12 teams, you were into a World Cup playoff. The quarterfinals were the World Cup playoffs, so, and even the losers of that playoff got to go to a repercharge. So, you know, we knew that game three against Indonesia was extremely important, and, and similarly, game one against Thailand, the country which the team had never got a point off, never had a draw or a win in history, was an extremely important um, moment. Um, I knew it, we knew it'd be a tough game. We knew it'd be extremely tough. We thought if we did everything right um, and played to our full potential, we thought that we might be able to get you know, a draw out of the game or a really close result, which would be important for all aspects, goal difference, trying to get any point on the board to try and beat any other team, you know, both in our group, but also in, in those kinds of tournaments, you're also competing against other groups. So, you know, it had all those different variables 
um, going through our heads before the tournament, trying to map out what it could look like with a win, a draw, or a loss, you know, in that first instance, and then trying to map out what we'd do in terms of rotating the squad around, knowing that the base of fitness wasn't so high, and then treating what game two against Australia might be like, game three against Indonesia, and then obviously targeting the big match, which would be either game four or game five to get to the World Cup. Before that historic match against Chinese Taipei, did the team already feel like they'd exceeded the expectations? And if so, how did you get them up again? Heading into that game against Chinese Taipei, the, the actual quarterfinal of the Asian Cup, but the World Cup qualifier, um, there was massive expectation on the group and, and we'd lifted that expectation from, from within. By getting that first ever win against Thailand, the belief in the team had, had materialised. Uh, there, was, there was all of a sudden a feeling within the group that, that we can achieve things, that, that we can get to levels, that we can dream about things that we didn't think you know, were possible before. And you know, even the game against Australia, uh, where we rested a lot of key players, um, you know, as I, as I said before about rotating the squad and, and keeping them fresh for, for the really important fixtures in terms of our uh, World Cup progress. Um, we were nil all at half time um, and that gave the players an incredible amount of extra extra sense of, of pride and, and knowing that all the work that we'd put in over the previous three months was coming to fruition in a major tournament. So, you know, on the eve of the Chinese Taipei game, not only did they feel like this was a real opportunity, so did I. I knew that it was, it was real, it was within touching distance. If, if we did everything right, you know, preparation-wise, hydration-wise, fueling-wise, recovery-wise, uh, planning to play against this opposition, which we which we always do, and I, I think we're always meticulous with. Um, there was a real sense within this group that that we could win that game. Um, and again, it was a team that we'd never won against previously, but that didn't matter now because we'd beaten Thailand um, already in the tournament and beaten Indonesia by a big score. And previously, they'd played Indonesia, I think, and had a three or draw. And this time, we'd beat them six nil. So even the sense. From within for the group was that they'd gone to another level and this was just the next step on that journey. So what was that turning point at which you all started to feel that anything was possible? You just never know when when you're going to have those moments in sport, when you're going to have those crucial moments where where something just changes and and you know we were really competitive against Thailand and we scored a late winner I think 80th, 81st minute where we had a shot from 30 metres out and the keeper let one go through her legs and you know the goal was a little bit fortunate but the fact that we won the game was important but it was more the fact that we were competitive throughout the game that we actually possibly deserved to win to a large extent and even if we didn't we knew that we were as good as Thailand in that moment so you know that's where you don't need the false bravado anymore. That's where you don't need the beating of the chest. That's where you just know that what you've done in preparation and in training, you know, um, transpired in a game and that you actually can do it and that you're actually capable of doing it and that you actually belong at this level. And, th and they're things that no one else can give you. You know, they're things that parents or coaches or, or external people, social media can't really give you. A lot of that stuff is often fluff. Uh, but this is the real sense of, of belonging and belief and, and we really got that in game one and you know again even in game two that nil all against Australia up until half time up until the 65th minute when Sam, Sam Kerr scored a header the team found these these precious moments where added added this invaluable word you know and I've used belief a few times but it, it was real belief that we could get through to the World Cup. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So I'm going to set the scene. They've equalized in an 82nd minute. You've gone into extra time. No one scored again. You're heading to penalties. What's going through your head in that quarterfinal before it unfolds? Yeah, look, we played Chinese Taipei. It was a, it was a probably a 50-50 game. If not, I thought we were the better team for, for the majority of the game and had more of the better chances throughout the game. They scored a late equaliser just to take it to extra time. I don't know why, but I just had the feeling that we were going to win it in extra time. I thought we were the better team and and looked stronger on the field at that point, but, but we couldn't convert the half chances that we had in that period and went to the penalty shootout. And, you know, in my history, my personal history in penalty shootouts in the previous six or seven years was not very good. <laughs> I'd only won one or two out of possibly 10 or 11. So it wasn't a moment that I personally went into thinking, wow, we've got a good opportunity here. And, you know, the penalty shootout started. Uh, we scored one, I think they scored one, and then we missed the, missed the couple. And, you know, I thought, you know, we've really let go of a good opportunity here. And obviously, you don't try and show that, but deep down I thought, you know, this was an opportunity where we probably had had it in our hands to go to the World Cup and and then our goalkeeper saved the couple. Uh, so it brought it back to back to even. She took a penalty as well. Amazing, amazing courage from Olivia McDaniel to be able to save a couple and then step up and take the tenth penalty herself to send it to um, sudden death, I think, from memory. Uh, they had the winning kick a couple of times. Uh, especially on the last one, which is something that I'd had previously um, at the Rio Olympics where you've got the winning kick and, and you don't score. So I'd felt how much that hurts and how much that burns. So I almost felt for Taipei in that moment. But, you know, it was within... And we all know how quickly penalty shootouts can change and how quickly they can turn. And, you know, we went from being down a shot on the verge of one kick away from being out to having the winning kick. And Serena Bolden, who'd missed one earlier in the tournament, um, you know, the amount of fortitude and, and strength of character to be able to step up when you've missed one in the game before and now come up for the winning kick was amazing. But, you know, we had a few principles in our team, a few principles that we lived up to in our team and that we lived at training. And, you know, she firmly believed in a lot of that stuff. And, and she's, a, she's an eccentric type character, but she stepped up and, and believed in herself in that moment and, and scored the winner and, and really changed football. You know, and I don't say it lightly, I think change football in, in the Philippines forever. When do you think it sank in for everyone at what they had achieved? Was it instantaneous or was it kind of a gradual feeling that peaked later that day or that night? Look, for, for me personally, it sunk in straight away. Um, you know, as a kid, and I've told the story many times, I was the kid going with Dad to watch the Socceroos play uh, from 1981 85, I watched on TV, I was too little to travel to Melbourne when we lost to Scotland, then 89 against Israel, then 93 against Argentina, then 97 against Iran. So that whole 32-year journey um, of watching the Socceroos fail to qualify was something that's, you know, in my blood, that's ingrained in my soul and how hard it was for us to try and lift the sport uh, here in this country. So, you know, that moment when when John Aloisi struck that penalty and there was a, you know, elation and jubilation for Australia, 
that was the moment for us in the Philippines. You know, it was the exact identical, for me, it was the exact identical moment. So that euphoria for me was instant. I knew how much of a game changer that can be right from that moment because I'd lived it before with Australia and, you know, felt it. And, you know, we all, we all, we all here back in Australia felt that moment and, and, it, and experienced what an amazing event that was. And, you know, I think if you go back to any person in football who's of an age, that's the one moment that they'll remember for the rest of their life. Um, in Australia and for Philippines football, this will be the one moment that every football fan and for that matter every sports fan will remember for the rest of their life because it's really the moment that put Philippines football on the map. So with this World Cup around the corner, are you doing anything differently leading in? You know, you asked about my goals, but it's never been about my goals. Everything that we do, we do as a, as a group and as a collective, uh, right from the outset, from the time that we turned up in LA as a group, uh, we had some one-on-one sessions with every single player and, and you know, that was a half an hour interview process with every player and, and during that period we got to find out what their goals were, what their personal goals were and what their team goals were. So it's not about what my goals are, what I want to achieve, it's about what they want to achieve and you know, we articulate that, we write that down and we ensure that everyone's aligned with the goal of the team that is expressed by them and you know, that's continued on now. We've set a new bunch of goals. We've reset our goals for this World Cup. Um, we want to get out of the group and wanting to get out of the group means we have to win at least one game, potentially two games to get out of the group. It's extremely tough. It's extremely tough. So, you know, we're accountable to those words now. They're, they're the words of the playing group. They're the words of the leadership group. Uh, they're the words that we now use within our group. And everyone has to live by those goals. And you know, we've had to raise the bar in our terms, of, in in terms of training, in terms of professionalism, in terms of the way we look after ourselves, in terms of the amount of matches we do, the amount of training sessions we do, everything that we do, everything that we do as a group now, players and staff revolves around that goal, which is to get out of the group. You know, is it possible? It's going to be extremely tough. You know, I've been to World Cup and been watching Women's World Cups for for 20, 25 years now, and know that. It's going to be an extremely daunting task, particularly being the first World Cup that you're at, you know, the nerves that you have to overcome, the pressure of that moment. Um, but I believe we're tracking well. You know, there's a real sense of, again, belief in the team that, that we can do it. We know that we're tracking well. We know that we're working hard and we're doing everything we possibly can, everything, everything we possibly can uh, to achieve that goal. Take me through working with this particular group. Is it different in any way to previous coaching gigs you've had? After the initial three month period, uh, my contract was up. Uh, I'd had offers to go to Europe and, and coaching clubs over there and some other national teams around the world and, and even some clubs here in Australia. But, you know, we started on this journey and I felt like just qualifying the World Cup, qualifying for the World Cup wasn't enough. Um, and having worked with a group for that period of time, I found something within this group that I haven't felt yet in one of our teams here. I've had some amazing teams, I've had some amazing leaders um, in teams that I've coached, and especially um, my recent experience at the Central Coast Mariners where I had you know, unbelievable leaders like an Oliver Bazanich and a Matt Simon, um, you know, Mark Berrigetti, um, and even to, to a lesser, I won't say lesser extent, a younger ex extent, um, a young Kai Rolls who was really progressing as a leader. But you know, I'd come to a group that had you know, this sense of humility and gratitude, which I haven't seen yet 
in an Australian team. You know, they haven't been they hadn't been spoilt by the trappings of professional sport or elite sport and were really grateful for everything they were given because previously they were given very little. Uh, so every little step forward that we thought was a little step forward for them was a massive step forward, just from even getting all the same pair of socks, <laughs> the same pair of shorts, the uh, fresh jerseys for training, you know, things that we take for granted here. Uh, whereas for them it was all a new experience to be treated like professional athletes. And, you know, having that gratitude and having that humility within the group, having that collective vision, um, and as I said, we worked on the alignment and unity. We're, we're real pillars of strength of this team and, and I don't want this team to lose it. You know, it's been a year and a half now together and you know, they're getting accustomed now. We've just signed a brand new deal with Adidas and having a major brand like that attached to the group. Uh, and now they're getting more gear and looking professional and feeling professional and training like professionals, but that we still haven't lost that innocence and, and gratitude and humility that I think are you know, amazing qualities to have as individuals, but especially um, as a group. So something that, you know, I know that as a staff, we all look forward to working with them. We all look forward to, I guess, teaching and coaching and making them be the best players they can possibly be. Okay, so why the Philippines? What do you love about coaching this team? I guess the, the best part about working with this team and for the Philippines is is having the honour of working for another country and you know we've got a few Australian coaches that are now working abroad um, you know but to work for another country is you know to coach Australia is something special and something that you dream of doing as a kid you know being able to play for Australia or coach Australia ultimately we're all representing our country so to be able to stand on the sidelines and listen to your own anthem is is obviously spine tingling and something that you know, is memorable and honourable and something you'll never forget. But to be given that trust um, by another country is something really special and, and even deeper, I guess, than, than representing your own country and, and hearing their anthem and, and hearing, you know, fans from their country supporting you to support them and, and knowing, especially the Philippines, such a big country in terms of population, but such a small country in terms of football, 110 million people in the Philippines, but we've travelled to Europe, we've travelled to North America, Central America, South America and, and the diaspora wherever we've travelled has been unbelievable. We get flooded in the hotel uh, with people who come with gifts, who come with food, who come to support uh, and something that we never really experienced when we travelled with the Australian team. Everything, everything's sort of taken for granted that they'll be able to watch the team on TV. But we've played everywhere around the world in the past 12 months and our fans have almost outnumbered the home team you know, on several occasions in Chile, in Costa Rica, uh, in, in LA when we played against New Zealand. So it, it really is something special and rewarding to be able to represent, you know, another country to your own and almost feel like, feel like you're doing something special with them and, and, and for them. I also want to hear if the players are well known back at home in the Philippines. Or if they're not, do you think that will change after the World Cup? When I first started, um, football in the Philippines is, is very similar. Uh, to football in Australia, but almost at an even more diminished level in terms of widespread appeal and, and knowledge of, of the landscape. Uh, we know that in Australia, football's number three, number four, potentially even number five sport. When you compare it to NRL, AFL, when you look at mass media coverage, corporate support, broadcast support, uh, even spectator support. Uh, you know, I know that we were 
improving for a long period of time, but maybe stabilised and plateaued uh, for the last four or five years in terms of you know how far we've we've grown the sport here in Australia. And the Philippines is very similar. Uh, basketball's number one by a country mile, uh, daylight second, uh, and then there's some other sports that get some notoriety like boxing, uh, volleyball. And football is maybe a distant fourth or fifth in terms of popularity and, and appeal. So, you know, the fact that we qualified for the World Cup has definitely grown that. Uh, there was some, obviously, media attention, as you would imagine, in any country that qualifies uh, for a World Cup. The biggest change that I noticed was when we had the AFF tournament in, in Manila last year in, in July. Uh, we played game one against Australia, which was built up as the big game of, of the tournament. There was about a thousand people there at the Rizal Stadium in the middle of Manila. I was expecting a bigger crowd, there was a thousand. Um, we won that game. We played game two, there was 500 people, we won that game. Played game three, we won that game, there was about 500 people again. Game four, another game. We won again, 500 people. And all of a sudden we came to the last game in the group where we were automatically qualified for the semi-finals already and we were playing Thailand. And all of a sudden there was about 1,500 people for that game. So there was a little bit of growth. We finished second in the group. We lost that last game to Thailand and played Vietnam in the semi-final. And it was the first time you see real life growth um, of a team and of a sport and of, of the personalities within the group. And for the semi-final there was about 2,500 people there was an ultras group, flares going off, singing going off. The atmosphere for, for that amount of people was amazing. It was something that you feel, you know, all around the world with fan groups who get behind the team. We won that game for the first time ever, beat Vietnam. Made the final and all of a sudden there were seven and a half, eight thousand people packing out uh, this stadium and we won that tournament. And all of a sudden, the next day there were headline news around the Philippines. There was posters up around buildings of the players. Uh, and within two days they were meeting, you know, the newly elected President Marcos in the presidential palace. So it was a real-time uh, experience to see coming from nothing, almost nothing, to mass appeal within the space of two weeks. So I know that we've hit that mark a couple of times qualifying for the World Cup. We got a bronze medal at the SEA Games, which was the first ever medal for football in, in 40 years winning this AFF tournament, which is the country's first ever senior trophy in football. So we had all these touching points that have, that have definitely increased the popularity of the team and the individuals within the Philippines, but, you know, it's still got a long way to go. You know, it's a little bit like, again, mirroring back to what's happening in Australia. We have our highs and lows, and, and we need to ensure that we capitalise on these highs, and we need to ensure as a country that we capitalise on these moments in terms of getting the extra corporate support, getting the support from the mass media and putting in place, as I said earlier, the structures for youth development pathways to ensure this success is sustained rather than, you know, just a, a fluky one-time event. So, you know, it's really something that I'm conscious of um, and hoping that, you know, however long I'm there for and, and where there for as a coaching staff that we leave a legacy for, for football in this country for boys and girls and you know we all know what the World Cup can do. The World Cup transcends everything and this is their one moment to really use the World Cup as, as a starting point for the growth of the sport forever. You got over the Asian Cup, you've qualified, we're heading into the World Cup but the story between you and the Philippines national team is far from over. How does it rank in your coaching career? 
Yeah, for me personally, I've said it publicly already, this is probably the best achievement so far of my coaching career. There was other teams that I've coached that have been successful with Sydney FC, the W League team, we, we made the final every year and won multiple trophies and premierships and grand finals and went to World Club Championship and with the Matildas we achieved extraordinary success in terms of rankings and, and going from almost nobodies to household names and packing out stadiums. So lots of wonderful, exciting highlights, you know, at the Mariners going from, you know, wooden spooners basically for seven years straight to topping the table for three quarters of the year and making the first final and, and starting that production line of players going again, which had disappeared for, for a number of years. So, you know, I'm really proud of things that, you know, I've achieved, but together, especially my assistant coach Noel over the last five years that we've achieved um, as a group. Uh, but for me, this is still the highlight because this really was, you know, a story that was amazing, unbelievable and almost miraculous to a certain extent of, of what we've done together as a group with, a, with an amazing bunch of people, players, staff, everyone as a collective united to produce what we produced and, and to change sport in the country, to change people's lives is, is really something special and something that we're all proud of.